Thank you so much. Good evening, everyone. My name's Malcolm. I have the privilege of uh, leading the church here at uh, Dundonald. Thank you for being with us. Last Sunday night, we began a series looking at some of the big questions of life, not of Christian life, of life. And we did so by asking the question, who am I? Exploring what it means to have a Christian worldview that answers that question with the simple truth that you are made in the image of God. That the most important label that could ever be attached to you, the only one that really matters, is that you are loved. And tonight, online and here, I want to take some time to answer a second big question. Why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? I don't know if many of you remember the old um, children's book, Green Eggs and Ham. Anybody remember that? By Dr. Zeus. Well, here's what he says to the asked question, why am I here? If you'd never been born, then what would you be? You might be a fish or a toad in the tree. You might be a doorknob or three baked potatoes. Worse than all that, you might be a wasn't. A wasn't just isn't. He just isn't present. But you, you are you. Now isn't that pleasant? Today you are you and it's truer than true that there's no one alive who is youer than you. Shout aloud, I am lucky to be what I am. Thank goodness I'm not just a clam or a ham or a dusty old jar of gooseberry jam. If I am what I am, and it's a great thing to be, if I say so myself, happy birthday to me. Don't worry, the sermon doesn't end there. You're, you're all right. Last week, as we asked the question, um, uh, who am I? We did so through the lens of some of the big isms of society. And I'm going to use those across this whole series. Why am I here? What do the big isms say to answer that question? These isms don't roar at you, but they're behind much of the thinking that impacts the way you make your priorities or shape your worldview. Materialism will tell you that you're here to gather stuff. Hedonism will tell you that you're here to be happy, to indulge all of your desires and your longings. Capitalism will tell you that you're here to make money. Marxism will tell you that you're here to contribute to the great struggle, that your little life doesn't matter. You hear it in um, the musical Les Miserables, in the story of Jean Valjean, when Marius says to his friends, your little life doesn't count at all. And nihilism will tell you that there's no reason for you to be here at all. You're nothing but a bundle of gases, and it's a dog-eat-dog world, and whoever's the best will stay around and whoever isn't can do what they like because there's no purpose to your life at all. The French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre wrote a book called Les Jus Sans Fait and it means in English, the die is cast. I read it many years ago. And um, in the story, a man and a woman uh, die. And after they've died, they meet each other and fall in love. And they're given the opportunity to go back. Oh, and the lights came on. They're given the opportunity to go back and to 
live another day or two to see if they can make their lives matter and nothing changes. It's so fatalistic. It's so depressing. They still end up dying with nothing to have lived for, nothing to have marked their lives. The problem with materialism and hedonism and capitalism and Marxism and nihilism and every other ism, if we're not careful, is that they lead us into ways of understanding our purpose on earth, which are finite and limited and broken. Mark, materialism will tell you that you're here to gather stuff, but Christianity says something different. Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21. I'll be reading a series of scriptures tonight. God blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word always. Luke chapter 12, Jesus says this to his disciples and to those that are listening to him. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I'll do this. I will pull down my barns and I will build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich towards God. You can't take anything you make with you. And at the end of your life, if all that you have is stuff, what have you achieved? Hedonism. You're here to be happy. You're here to indulge yourself in as many desires and experiences as you want. In the Old Testament, King Solomon wrote a book called the Book of Ecclesiastes. Sometimes called in Hebrew traditions, the preacher, because that's how it begins. It begins, and the book of Ecclesiastes sets out to ask a question, why are you here? And it goes through four or five big questions. Maybe at some point in the future, I'll preach through this book because it's often misunderstood. What the preacher in Ecclesiastes does is ask some of the big questions and allow them to work out, not just to the conclusion that we're comfortable with, but beyond that. So look at hedonism, the idea that you're here just to be indulgent and happy. And most people stop when they think, yes, yeah, so that's the answer. What the preacher in Ecclesiastes does is push past that and say, what's the result of happiness? How do you define it? Where does it come from? How long does it last? What does it feel like? What does it look like? He does the same with family. He does the same with intellect and rationality. He, he, he rips apart the straitjacket of rationalism. And he answers, asks questions that are profoundly important. In Ecclesiastes 8.15, we hear this. This is the preacher working it through. So I, com I commend enjoyment, for there's nothing better for people under the sun than to eat and drink and enjoy themselves. The very verse Jesus quotes in the parable of the foolish barn builder. And enjoy themselves, for this will go with them in their toil through the days of life that God gives them under the sun. And the unspoken reality is, and when they die, there's nothing. All of their happy experiences amount to nothing on your deathbed. What about capitalism? You're here to make money. 
But Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6 of Matthew, no one can serve two masters for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and wealth. What about Marxism, the idea that you're here to contribute to the struggle for freedom? Is that all you are? A cog in the machine? A little bit of a bigger plan? You don't matter. Your life's unimportant. Your name doesn't matter. Your family doesn't matter. Your history doesn't matter. Your dreams don't matter. Your future doesn't matter. Your, your family don't matter. Your children, your life, all those intricate moments that you've enjoyed, they're just irrelevant so long as you can contribute to the bigger scheme of things. That's what Marxism believes. Compare that to the Hebrew scriptures where in Psalm 8, you hear the psalmist saying this, you have made people a little lower than God. And you've crowned them with glory and honor. You've given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O sovereign Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What a purpose. What a sense of meaning and significance that comes from a Judeo-Christian understanding of why we are here. And what about nihilism? There's no reason for you at all. You are worth nothing. You're just a bundle of cells and fibers and matter that have happened to clump together over billions of years. And when you're gone, no one will miss you. What a way to live. What a purpose to get out of bed for in the morning. That leads to a complete loss of identity, purpose, hope. Joy, meaning, significance, value, worth. How can you find any of those things in that worldview? Compare it to what God says through the Apostle Paul. And we'll return to this verse a little later to the church in Ephesus. I read from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. And I want to read to you what it says in chapter 2, verse 10 of the book of Ephesians. Listen to these words because I love this translation. Paul trying to help the Ephesians understand who they are and what they're here for. Listen to this. For we are what he has made us. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God has prepared for us to do as our way of life. What a wonderful, beautiful thing. We are what he has made us. Created and crafted by him. Every cell known every fiber known, every part of who you are known to God. Your deepest mistakes and feelings and your deepest longings and desires made by him, fashioned by him, seen by him, understood by him. Broadly, there are three ways of looking at the world that I want to think about with you for a moment. I'm not going to spend very long on these before I move on to why Christianity says that you are here. The atheistic view says that there is no God. Comes from a Greek, two Greek words that mean no God. So it's not very complicated to understand. And therefore, if there is no God, you're not created. You're just happened. However you get to that conclusion, you're nothing other than the process of a series of incidents, accidents, and occurrences. The deist, the deistic view of the world believes that there is some kind of creative force, not necessarily personal, and that you're the result of that. But it doesn't give you a purpose. 
Because the deistic view of the world kind of gives you the idea that whatever the force is, whether it's the universe or gods or spirits or powers, whatever it is, it's created the world and kind of kicked it into touch and said, get on with it. There's no involvement. There's no direct engagement. There's no intimacy or friendship or relationship or guidance or direction or purpose. It's just like um, a thing that's happened and is now working itself out. Christianity isn't deistic and it's not atheistic. It is a theistic faith. That means that we believe in an individual, powerful person called God who has a personality, who has a name, an identity, and a purpose in his own existence and in the existence of the world. And therefore, every one of us, every person on earth in a theistic worldview has a purpose. Islam is also, also a theistic tradition. Judaism is a theistic tradition. Sikhism is a theistic tradition. I don't have time to go into the purposes that each faith body for you tonight, although I'd love to do it. It fascinates me. But let me uh, cut to the chase of it by saying this. None of them have a gracious, life-filled, hopeful purpose like Christianity. None of them root your identity and your purpose in anything more life-giving. Some of them say you're here to obey the rules. You're here to do what's expected of you. And if you do it wrong, you're finished. Some say that you're here to keep coming back again and again and again and again and again until you get it right. Christianity gives you a purpose, a meaning, a significance, a worth and a value which is remarkable. Let me give you some of the purposes of Christianity that explain why every human being is here. Number one, and this is important, you are here because God wants you to be here. You're here because you were designed. You were crafted. Whether you are quote-unquote able-bodied or quote-unquote disabled, you are designed and loved. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, a key verse that we'll come back to again and again, God said, let us make humankind in our image, in the image of God. He made them male and female. He created them. Later on in the story of the Jewish people in Exodus chapter 3 and 4, a man called Moses was called by God to lead the people of um, the Hebrew people out of Egypt where they've been held in slavery for 400 years. And Moses got anxious when God told him that he was going to do that. He said, I can't do this. I'm not able to talk. I've got a stutter. Moses had a stutter. And God says to him in Exodus chapter 4, who made the blind man? Who made the person unable to speak? Who made all things? In the book of Job, a man who suffered deeply, lost his children, went through serious loss and heartbreak of business and family and reputation and everything else. He begins to question God and say, where are you? Why did you let this happen? What's my purpose on the earth? And God says to him, who made the mountains, Job? Who made the stars? Who made the planets? Who made you? Who knows every fiber in your body? Me, Job, me. You're here because God wants you here. Now I'm guessing that not many people in this room or watching online grew up thinking there were an accident. But I did. I was told it at every opportunity. You're the mistake. One brother born in 1958. My poor mother had children in three decades. God help her. 
One child born in 1958, one child born in 1960, one child born in 1963, one child born in 1964, done and dusted, and then Malcolm arrives in 1970. And as a result, I was consistently, constantly told, you were a mistake, we didn't want you. You were the one that wasn't supposed to be here. I wasn't a mistake, I was a blessing. <laughs> I really believe that, by the way, even if you're surprised by it. God designed me. He knit me together in my mother's womb. He gave me this strange concoction of personality. He gave me the mind that I have. He gave me the really weird way of looking at the world that asks odd questions and needs to be convinced of arguments. God made me. He crafted me. I'm not here because of an accident. I'm here because God wanted me here. So are you. Whatever you've been told, whatever story is being spoken over you, whatever life you've lived, whatever things, parents or teachers or headmasters or anybody else has said, you're here because God wants you here. And that's exciting because you're not talking about some kind of tin pot God who hasn't got power. The creator of the universe decided to make you the way he did. What a weird bunch of people we are. And yet all of us somehow fit into this purpose and plan of his. He wants you. He's interested in you. As I said before, about five months ago here, and somebody came to me at the end of the sermon and said, you know, pastor, I didn't actually know that. God doesn't just love you. He likes you. You're not an accident. Why am I here? You're here because God wants you to be here. And I would go further. I would say that you're in church tonight or listening online because God wants you to. You might think, no, it's because my wife dragged me here. Or my girlfriend told me that we were finished if I didn't come. <laughs> well, God will bless those that come for the wrong reasons and stay for the right ones. Secondly, we are here to be friends of God. I want you to let that sink in for a moment. In Christian tradition, there is something called a catechism. A catechism is a series of questions that are asked that you learn the responses to, and they are a way of helping you to be schooled and disciplined and um, embedded in orthodox faith. Orthodox just means right. There's one called the Westminster Catechism. Most of you probably aren't aware of it. Some of you maybe. And it has a series of questions to which there are a series of answers. And what would happen would be, for hundreds of years, teachers would uh, teach students, young people or older, the questions and then explain the answers, not just teach them parrot fashion, but teach them um, so that they could understand who they were and why they were here. The first question in the shorter Westminster Catechism is, what is man's chief end. In other words, why are you here? Anybody know the answer? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why you're here. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It always staggers me that God would decide to make humanity in order to have companionship. We're told in the creation narrative that that's why he did it. And in that story, we are told that God would come to the earth 
and walk with man in the heat of the day. God enjoys your company. He enjoys being with you. He enjoys you. You were made to be his friend. You weren't made to be his enemy. You were made for life. You weren't made for death. You were made for joy. You weren't made for sorrow. That's why we struggle with sorrow and death and sadness so profoundly. Because we weren't made for them. We were made for life. We were made for friendship with the creator of the universe. And deep down inside every human being, that desire still rests. And we try to satisfy it with everything and anything that we can find. The famous Times columnist Bernard Levin said, there is a gaping hole inside human beings. And no matter how much television and entertainment and drugs and sex and power we stuff into it, the hole remains. One very early church father said this, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Another said this, there is a God-shaped hole in human hearts that only Christ can fill. You were made to be God's friend. You were made to be his companion. Now, you might look at your life as I would look at mine and say, that's impossible. Why would the creator of the universe make me to be his friend? You could choose anybody else who's better than me. But you don't get to make that decision because you're not the creator. If you were made because God wants you, you were also here because God wants friendship with you. Companionship. And thirdly, your life can bring glory to God. It's remarkable, I think. Little old me can bring glory to the Creator. How does that work? And yet that's what he says. Speaking to Israel in Isaiah chapter 43 Verses 6 and 7, God says this, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not withhold them. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now, you're not only bringing glory to God when you're in church in a building in a gathering, singing and raising your hands and bringing tithes and offerings and listening to services. You bring glory to him when you act like a human being. When you treat people with respect, you bring glory to him. When you stop to listen to someone's story, you bring glory to him. When you love your husband or your wife, when you uh, bring up your children properly, when you engage as an accountant in a new job and treat your staff properly. Uh, not that you're not doing that, Philip. I love you as the church treasurer. I don't want to put any threat on that relationship. You bring glory to God when you're a youth pastor, when you're a granddad, when you're a teacher, when you're a doctor. Whoever you are, whatever you do, wherever God has placed you, your everyday life can bring glory to him. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 12. Let your walking around, going to work, coming home life be offered to him as an act of worship. Compare that to Marxism that says your working life is only to contribute as a cog in the machine. Blech. What a deflated sense of purpose. 
compared to your working life brings glory to the creator of the universe. I know which one I like. Compare the idea that your money and your possessions and your wealth are there to give you status to the idea that your money and your possessions and your wealth are there to advance the kingdom of God and bring joy and peace and life to others as well as you. I know which one I'm going to choose. The isms of our society have been so embedded for so long that we kind of accept them without stopping to think, but they don't make sense. They reduce our purpose. They, um, they demote us. They strip us of integrity and dignity and value and worth. And they leave us feeling that we're at the behest of someone else. But Christian tradition, Christian faith, Christian theology, faith in Jesus Christ elevates us. It gives us purpose beyond anything that anyone else can offer. Dignity and worth and value in every human life. Earlier on, I said I wanted to come back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that verse that I read to you that says, we are what he has made us. In Greek, the, um, the word that is used for workmanship, I've told some of you this before, is the Greek word poeme. It's spelt in English, P-O-E-M-E. And it's the word that we get poem from. The best way of translating it, now listen to this. I, for the life of me, I don't understand how this couldn't be appealing. Here is an accurate translation. You are God's original work of art. How can that be? You, with all of your faults, I don't know if I'm the only one, but you know, when, when people rush to point out your faults. Do you ever just want to say, I'm aware? (laughs) I know quite a few myself, thanks. You got the first 5%. Would you like me to give you the rest? Anybody ever feel like that? When God looks at you, he says, you're a work of art. You're unique. (laughs) That's definitely true. There's never going to be anybody like you. You fill a space in time and eternity and on this planet that is about more than taking up air. You matter. Because this master artist has chosen you as a contributor to his purposes. You're a work of art, a masterpiece, not crafted by some three-year-old, but crafted by Almighty God. I guess sometimes what we feel is that we're not so good at life. Now, let me speak for a moment. I'm not assuming that everybody here is a parent. I think that's often a mistake. But I wonder if any of you have had experience of children. We have. We had four under five and a half and we're tired for seven years. Just telling, just saying. And our kids would bring home um, a picture. Did you ever have your children bring home a picture from school? And they'd rush in the door and say, Look what I did, Daddy. And you'd look, and you'd look, and you'd look, and they'd say, what is it? And you'd say, it's a, is it a box? No, it's you, Daddy. What do you say in that moment? You say, that's the worst painting I've ever seen. 
you daft four-year-old. Go and do a better one. Of course you don't. What do you say? It's fantastic. And you hang it, you put it on the fridge for heaven's sake. God looks at our stumbling efforts. I just look and say, oh, for goodness sake, you're useless. He says, that's fantastic. You're my boy. You're my girl. I love you. I love what you've done with our fumbling, stumbling efforts at life. He still loves us because he made us. Wow. Fourthly, and we begin to touch on holy ground. We're here to live for Jesus Christ. Given the context that some of our church family are going through, the words that I'm about to read have been thought about and crafted carefully. You see, as we approach the end of our lives, most of us begin to think about the rest of our lives. Not one of you will get to the end of your life and say, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. None of you will say, I spent far too much time with my family. Nobody will say, I wish I made more money. Nobody will say, I wish I'd lived in a bigger house. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And here's what he says in chapter 1, starting at verse 21. Why is Paul here? For me, living is Christ and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which I prefer. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is far more necessary for you. Since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in faith, so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel and are in no way intimidated by your opponents. For them, this is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation. And this is God's doing. For he has graciously granted you the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well. Since you are having the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. We are here to live for Christ. And if needs be, to die for him. No other worldview has that power. It runs out when you die. Christian worldview doesn't. 
The Christian worldview carries your purpose through life and into death and out the other side. There's no other worldview. There's no other conviction that has that kind of power. It's a remarkable thing. Whether we live or whether we die, we are here for Christ. The bravest, strongest, most beautiful prayer that a human being can pray is do in my life whatever will bring greatest glory to your name. You see, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, not all of you are my brothers and sisters in Christ yet. If you're not a Christian, you're not my brother or sister. Not yet. But we are fashioned for eternity. Every other ism runs out. Every other purpose runs out. But not Christian purpose. It lasts forever. It pushes beyond the current life and into the next and can never be taken away from us. But many Christians, let alone non-Christians, have settled for temporary purposes. Do you know one day evangelism will stop? Worship will stop. One day organizing the rota for songs will stop. Praise the Lord. Do you know the church is like a helicopter? It's the rotas that kill you. One day all of that will stop. Worship will continue for eternity. You were made to worship God. With your decisions and your priorities and your money and your time and your voice and your gifts and your skills, here is an eternal purpose that will never run out. So let it excite you now. I don't mean always singing. That's one part of worship. I mean living in such a way that glory and honor is brought to Jesus Christ. All other purposes are temporary. With all of our brokenness, we are made for one purpose, that we might bring glory and honor to God. And tonight, it's helpful to stop and pause and reflect for a moment that God knows the moment you were born and he knows the moment that you will die. When James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote to the early church in chapter 4, he said this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there doing business and making money, yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wishes, we will live. And we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Any, anyone then who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it commits sin. Do you realize how much you're worth? How much your life matters? How much your purpose matters? 
be reflecting on these words from the Gospel of Matthew. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground unperceived by your father. That means die. A sparrow falling to the ground is idiom for death. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German martyr, killed just a few days before the end of the Second World War. And he spent a great deal of time trying to work out why he was here and who he was. He became quite troubled by the question, who am I? And he wrote this, who am I? They often tell me I stepped from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly, as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then really that which other men tell me of? Or am I only what I myself know of myself? Restless and longing and sick like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing in expectations of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once? A hypocrite before others, and before myself a contemptible woebegone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. Whoever you are, whatever you're here for, with all of the questions and longings and uncertainties and cacophony of confrontations and contradictions in your life, if you know this, it brings life. Whoever I am, you know, Lord, I am yours. Nothing brings peace like it. In January of this year, Somebody who I met on a number of occasions and respected very deeply died. Her name was Tessa Jowell. She died of a brain tumor. She stood in the House of Lords 
and gave a farewell speech, which is one of the most profound I have ever heard. Here's a quote from it. Seamus Heaney's last words were, do not be afraid. I am not afraid. I am fearful that this new and important approach about cancer research may be put into the too difficult box. But I also have such great hope. So many cancer patients collaborate and support each other every day. They create that community of love and determination wherever they find each other. All we now ask is that doctors and health systems learn to do the same. They learn from each other. In the end, what gives a life meaning is not only how it is lived, but how it draws to a close. And I want to tell you, and I think the family may be watching online, that one of the most beautiful men I have ever met is James Thompson. His life has been saturated with meaning. And it is drawing to a close in the most powerful and beautiful tones of life and hope and grace. He has lived well. And he is dying well. And I ask you to explore your heart. In the end, what gives a life a meaning is not just how it is lived, but how it draws to a close. How will your life draw to a close? In resentment, in arrogance, in pride, in fear, or in faith? In hope? In peace? Because you have come to realize that Jesus Christ is the giver of life and that in him there is purpose and meaning and destiny and grace and mercy. May God enable you to answer the question, why am I here? With the answer, I am here to live for the glory of God Let's pray. How will you now live? If you're joining us online, and what you've heard tonight causes you to say, I want to live for Christ. I want to reject the isms and live with an eternal purpose that will never be taken from me. Then in a moment or two, I'm going to pray with you. I had no idea that when we began this series, God would use it so profoundly. We're in the second week and there is a deep and profound sense of the Spirit's presence in this room. 
whoever you are, wherever you are on the journey of faith, I'm going to pray a prayer that I invite you to pray with me online or here. If you want Christ to continue or to be the center of your living. Lord, I reject every other thing. And I ask you to take me exactly as I am. Nothing else can bring me purpose. I've tried them and they don't work. They leave an empty space in my life. I want to live for you. I want my life to be lived on purpose for your glory, for your praise, for your honor, for your worship, that women and men might know and see you. I want to live as your friend. I reject all the other things that I've sought to give me significance and value and worth. And I embrace the identity that you have given me. Forgive me for the other things. Help me to live for you. Help me to live on purpose. And when the day comes, help me to step into eternity as your friend, knowing that I have lived well, that I have followed your priorities and sought to bring glory to your name. While your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, if you prayed that prayer at home, just drop us an email, would you? To pip at dundonaldelam.church so we can pray for you and support you and help you. If you want to contact me, you can. My email is malcolm, M-A-L-C-O-L-M, at dundonaldelam.church. If you prayed that prayer here tonight, and you meant it, for the first time, Would you raise your hand, please? No one's looking. Thank you. If you prayed it out of the depths of your heart and you're already a follower of Jesus, whether things have got confused or you're just determined to put him at the center, If, like me, you prayed that prayer, would you raise your hand, please? Thank you so much. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and for your mercy. You can put your hands down. Help us to live for you. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
sometimes on television, on the news particularly, if there's been a difficult issue addressed or discussed, the presenter will say, if you need any help with that, then there's a helpline on our website. I'm conscious that in these days, some of you may need help with the loss of loved ones, with sorrows that you have carried, with heartbreaks and pain. Because when somebody goes through what Johnny Thompson's family is going through, it reminds all of us of things that we have gone through. God can use that moment to bring peace and greater healing into our lives. I'm trying very hard to craft every sermon very carefully. But I know the heartache that some of you have carried. Don't carry it on your own. We love you. And if we love each other and allow this beautiful community that God is crafting in us to grow and blossom, then even in the valley we find hope and life and grace. So if you need help, it's not a weakness to tell us. We love you and we're praying for you.